Hello and welcome to this week's Behind the Bible with Pastor Liz, where we're going to talk about the devil. Now the first thing we have to realize when we're talking about something like the devil, something like Satan or Lucifer or Beelzebub or Mephistopheles, there's all these names for it, is that the devil is in many ways in our mind, in our heads, a cultural entity as much as it is a theological one. So there is biblical evidence for for something like the devil or Satan, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But the first thing we have to acknowledge is that the way we picture the devil in our head, the way we see the devil appear on television or in movies, is as much a cultural construction as it is from the Bible. And so we're going to have to untangle a little bit of those things that we have, the references we have in our head, the pictures that we make whenever we think about the devil. And so the first thing that we need to know is that the devil is a blending of a couple different gods. So there is the Christian tradition, the Hebrew tradition that we find in the Bible, which we're going to talk about in detail. Don't worry about that. Hold on, hold on for that in a moment. But um, it's also the devil as we think about it. The devil is a combination of how the Bible describes this angel or heavenly being and the Roman gods, the Greek gods, the uh, the gods that Egyptian gods that existed in the ancient Near East at the time, who often had horns, and so we're talking really about a Bible, a Bible Satan that is combined with gods like Pan, who is a goat, a horned goat figure, from in the Greek tradition, or Baal, which we talk about in the Old Testament, who was a Canaanite god who had horns or Mahak, who was a Canaanite god who had horns. You see what I'm saying? It's, it's a combination. We've developed this picture. A couple of the other influences that we have are people like John Milton, who wrote Paradise Lost and Dante's Inferno, which inform some of our opinions about the devil is and who Satan is. And so is Satan this the embodiment of pure evil? And does Satan appear in a in a in a hellscape a lake of fire for the rest of time and does the bible talk about satan in the same way that we picture this all-consuming force of evil no <laughs> you kind of had to know as i was leading up to that no it's not that simple like most theological things like most theological ideas that we find in the bible things like sin, things like the Trinity, things like who the nature of God, who the Messiah is, develops over time. We're talking about a book that combines stories from three or four thousand years of cultural and religious tradition. And so it's not as if Satan appears fully formed in the Bible as a concrete being, a, a, a separate humanoid personification of evil. What we see instead is a development over the course of the Bible, over the writings and stories of the Bible, of something like how we would talk about Satan or the devil. The first time that we see Satan, a Satan, appear in the Bible is in Job. Job is the oldest book in the Bible, the oldest story in the Bible. Um, it was written 
first. It was found in its form, uh, completed form first. Now, it's not the first book we find in the Bible. <laughs> um, Genesis is the first book we find in the Bible, but it wasn't. Genesis was not written first. Job is older. It's the oldest book in the Bible. And so we see something like Satan appear in the very first chapter of Job. In Job 1 and 2, God and Satan have an argument. Satan is, in this particular story, not given a proper noun. So it's not a name. It's not somebody's name. You wouldn't call him like, hey, Satan. It's not like, hey, Joseph, come here, right? Um, A Satan is anybody who can be an accuser or an, an adversary in a court setting. So think about Satan in Job as sort of being like a prosecuting attorney. Satan's job is to go around the world, a Satan's job, there's more than one, they're loose throughout the earth in Job, is to go around the earth and to reveal the inner nature of a human's inside, heart and soul. So the devil is going to trick you or tempt you or try to convince you to reveal what is true about your heart. And so if you have a sinful heart, then you're going to reveal that, and then Satan can use that against you in court. And so in stories like Job and throughout the Old Testament, what we have is a series of, of Satans who find the weakness in a person, who find that, that seed of, of doubt, that seed of temptation in a person and reveal it so that they can accuse this person in the court of God. And when God sees the true nature of this person, then the devil gets to execute them and send them away from God. So he's an investigator and a prosecuting attorney and the executioner all at once. And it just means adversary. So throughout the Old Testament, we see lots of Satans loose on the earth. And it's anybody who's trying to block God's, trying to be an obstacle for God's will. There are a few persons who are the devil. But that's later in the prophets, in the late prophets, closer to the New Testament period. Um, Zechariah 3 is where you want to look for that, where there is a person who is acting as the accuser, but it's not an evil figure. He's not the, he's not the personification of sin or, the, or um, the totality of all evil in the world. This Satan who is specific in Zechariah, is instead a spy. (laughs) Sort of similar to the other idea, but this is a specific person whom God has tasked to be a spy. So God has sent Satan, this Satan, into the world to discover what the truth is about humanity. Now, in the what's called the intertestamental period, which is the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's about 200, 300 years the idea, they, the Hebrew people are interacting more and more with the Greeks and the Romans. Well, not the Romans yet, but the Greeks. And they're starting to pick up some of the Greek mythology, some of the Greek um, understandings of who God or gods happen to be. And so they develop a different kind of an opinion about Lucifer. Now, Lucifer appears... Uh, Lucifer isn't named until later, but Lucifer as the idea of a fallen angel appears in this intertestimonial period. There are um, non-canonical gospels, that means stories that were written 
that have been used in a religious setting but are not considered officially part of the Bible. They're not the official word of God. They're just stories that have been written. And so there's, there's stories like the Book of Enoch, which appears in Eastern Orthodox Bibles, that talk about this fallen angel. And the idea here is that um, there was a Greek myth about an angel who uh, fell in love with a human and so wanted to have children with a human. And um, the punishment for this angel for doing so was to be kicked out of heaven and to let loose onto the earth. Not sent to hell, but let loose onto the earth. And later on, in about 100, 200 AD, after, after Jesus, we have um, some of the early church fathers saying, oh, that Greek myth is the same. There was a lot of this attempt to, um, to mesh, to justify both streams, right? And so people like our friend Origen, who we talked about a couple weeks ago, or um, Cyprian or Jerome, Jerome, who's pretty cool, um, Ambrosius, the really early church fathers who became part of the Roman tradition, all said, yeah, that fallen angel story that the Greeks have been talking about, that's really that's really Lucifer. That's the devil. On the other hand, there were there were folks who were saying, "No, you're reading Greek mythology into the Bible." People like Hieronymus, uh, Cyrilius of Alexander, folks who find themselves in Egypt and around in that area. So you got the Roman people who are saying, "Yeah, that Greek myth that we all grew up with, that we all heard, is the same guy." And then the folks who are in Northern Africa, um, like Eusebius, are saying. No, that's a that's a Greek myth, folks. We've never heard of that before. It's not in the Bible. <laughs> right? And so you have this tension between the two camps, which continues to grow over time. Now, in the New Testament, we do have Satan, who is a distinctive person, is a, is a being that is uniquely named Satan. Satan can now be understood as a proper noun. But Satan is not equal to or the king of the devils or the demons in the New Testament. Satan in the New Testament is a specific person, and it reflects the Je- Zechariah's understanding of Satan. That Satan is a specific person sent by God with a specific task, which is to tempt people to reveal their sin. And so what it's saying is that we have inside of all of us, all of us were born with a, an innate drive to sin, that this stain of sin, this disease of sin is part of who we are. And so Satan's job is to, is to tempt you to reveal that inner self. On Sunday, this coming Sunday in church, we're going to be talking about the temptation of Jesus when he gets driven into the wilderness and when Satan and Jesus have an argument and Satan tries to tempt Jesus into revealing that that sin part of himself so that Satan can accuse him and return back to heaven successful in his job. But it's not the personification of evil. Satan is not evil in the New Testament. Satan is a tempter. Satan convinces us to reveal our inner evil, our inner sin. Until we get to Revelation, which is why it's so important that we have a good definition of how we understand Revelation to be. Now, in Revelation, the devil or Satan is presented as a dragon who has many horns and spits fire and throws people into the lake of fire and damnation. And here, the devil is the personification of evil. But this reference, the description of 
of Satan is a reference to all the creatures we hear in the Old Testament who are chaos agents, who are monsters, who create chaos throughout the world. Um, things like the Leviathan, things like uh, imps or um, evil spirits that cause chaos, cause destruction, cause mayhem. And so if you understand Revelation as a metaphor for what the situation is, then the devil here is um, one who creates chaos, one who creates a world in which we are tempted to trust ourselves, trust other people, trust the governments of the world more than we trust God. So how did we get to this guy with a horn and a pitchfork and who's red that people dress up with at Halloween? Because if you read the descriptions of the devil or Satan in the Bible, Satan is a fallen angel. There's no angels that I've read of who have horns or a tail or a pitchfork. So how did we find it? Well, the medieval people were, were obsessed with the idea of explaining all the gaps. So if there was a question in the Bible, something that wasn't fully explained or wasn't fully uh, fleshed out in the scriptures, they would create stories to explain these holes. And so they were trying to answer the question of, why is there evil in the world? Why is there evil in the world? And so they fell into what is called Manichaeism. Manichaeism is the idea, which has existed in different forms throughout history, that there is an eternal fight between the powers of good and the powers of evil. And so there is, in this, in Manichaeism, there is a God who is all good and a God who is all bad, the devil. And they are constantly in fight with each other. And in Manichaeism, there are equal strength. They both have an equal claim to the world. They are constantly in fight with one another. And so in medieval Christianity, they took this Manichaeistic idea and named God as the angel that sits on your shoulder and the devil as the devil that sits on your shoulder tempting you to do bad things. Voices of good, voices of bad, constantly in, in fight, right? We've, seen, we've all seen that image. So then we have to look back and see, well, what did the church fathers say? If, if the medieval folks have taken this idea of Manichaeism and created a devil figure based on a bunch of different traditions and kind of combine it together so we can understand what's happening, so we can answer all those questions that linger in our minds, then what, what, what does that say with the rest of theology? The problem with the idea of an equally powerful evil force is that that diminishes God. And so you have folks like Augustine, who influenced Martin Luther and John Calvin and much of the Reformation figures, who say that it isn't that there's an evil force that causes you to sin. What happened was when Satan rebelled and, and was kicked out of heaven, that opened us all up like Pandora's box to the ability to sin that was already within our hearts. So we were already made with sin as part of who we are. So we don't need an evil force to convince us to do bad things, to, be, to, to act out of our sin to cause chaos and evil and trouble. We don't need that guy. He's not tempting us to do that. We don't need that voice in our ear. That voice is already there. It's part of who we are, just like my hair is part of who I am. And then we have... Um, St. Anselm, who, which says that, that the devil's whole problem 
is that the devil wanted to do things for himself. That the devil wanted to be in charge of how the devil would return back to heaven and refuses to accept God's help. And so the devil's sin is the refusal to accept grace from God. And none of those stories, and nowhere in the Old Testament and nowhere in the New Testament, do we see evidence of an equal God and an equal devil with equal power over the world. In every story throughout the Bible, God eventually triumphs. That the devil is only allowed to function insofar as God allows the devil to function. But then we have another problem, because why does the why does God allow evil to exist at all if God is all-powerful? And this is a question we will never have the answer to. It's not an answerable question because we will never have the vision or the, the eyes of God to see the world. I don't know why God allows evil to happen. I don't know why we are allowed to fall into temptation and allowed to give into our sin. It seems contradictory to a God who chooses good for the world. But it seems to me that it's just truth. That it just is. It's one of those things we have to accept. That the world has been allowed, for whatever reason, to give be given into sin to allow sin to be its dominant way that we react to one another. And maybe it's because God wants us to realize that in the end, what we need is God's grace. That we can't get there on our own. That we need to acknowledge that God is in charge. That without God's intervention in our lives, without God's grace being poured out upon us, we would, like Satan, always choose the temptation. So maybe God is waiting for us to wake up and realize that we can't do this on our own. We need God's hand. We need God's grace. And as soon as we're all humble enough to recognize that, the world would be a better place. God bless.